How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, <laughs> episode 132. Uh, that felt nice. It felt real smooth. Hello, we are the people you're listening to. <laughs> ASMR with the rain in the background. I was going to say, the rain, we've got an ambient edition of the podcast because we've got rain just coming down. It has been some crazy weather in Perth recently. Yeah, it's Jake. been a little topsy-turvy, hasn't it? Little, it, it? It goes from crazy. like... It's bipolar was probably the best way of describing it. We have had full blown rains that go sideways and then just breaks of sun in the middle of all of yeah. it. <laughs> I was driving home um, like an hour ago and I felt no exaggeration. The wind pushed my car as I was going for the lights. And I was like, that's scary. Because, like, what are you meant to do? <laughs> Turn into it? Like, no. Start driving into the wind. It's that's, all, yeah. yeah. I, I've, in the couple of games I've umpired in the last few weeks, it has been. Rough to say the least, earning right. earning every dollar of that that amount. <laughs> good, um, very good. Because you know, making your Jews. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, nothing wakes you up from uh, a big night out yeah, than yeah. freezing cold rain hitting against your face. <laughs> That's what you want, um, exactly. Well, yeah, trial um, by ice bath. It's, it's kind of a shame because the film of the week we're talking about isn't necessarily. A rainy film. I feel like they could have gotten away with it if they wanted to add that aesthetic to it, where it's just sort of wet and damp and winter the whole time, mm. but not quite. So it's going to be a little bit of a juxtaposition, but that that's quite okay. Now, Zeke, I have my film of the week trivia, and right. I want I want to warn you now. There's really not a lot out there. So I watched. It's not the first time I've seen the film, but I rewatched it on Prime. Mm-hmm. last night and i know you watched it on prime as well and prime are very good with their trivia their live notes you know which cast is in which scenes and like those live updates they're really good but between that and imdb trivia there is a very little out there yep. so i I'm, just looked at the trivia there are four points yeah so i'm gonna let you go first cool because i don't want us to double up well yeah you, you go first <laughs> there's really not a lot of trivia um for this one which is a shame because i want to learn Everything I can about the making of it. Um, yeah. So, what are you finding there, Seek? What's, well, what's... I, I think most importantly, and I think we'll probably talk a little bit about it later in the show. This is Miranda July's first feature in which she doesn't act in addition to directing. Mm. So, this is why I let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's really important because obviously, a lot of earlier feature directors, short directors, and stuff, they often do put themselves in their in the films they're directing. And right. It, and, and as someone who has directed solely and not acted mm. in the same film that they're directing, you know there is a difference oh, between um, yeah. as you know as someone who has actually done yeah done both in the same thing. Yeah, well, faces acted. you were in it, and and we both directed it, but exactly but you had so, that, yeah. And I think it's a different um, it's a different mentality you have to bring to the table because you're. You have to critique yourself, mm. and then you also have to critique everyone around you, and you have to find moderation between all of that. And it also, I mean, it's it's like every element. It's not just directing and acting in the same piece. If you're directing really close friends of yours, it's a different mentality yeah, yeah. too compared to directing just professional actors and actresses. Um, and I've been in all of those different um, right. positions at some point in time, whether as a director or, or performing in something. So, yeah, um, I, you've, we've definitely talked about, I think the, the point you're making in terms of directing friends and it going not, maybe not necessarily well is a star is born. I feel like that's what you're referring to. Yeah. I, Bradley Cooper. I mean, I, I think that's a great example. I think, okay. um, I think, uh, 
the fact that we haven't seen anything from him after that film. Um, right. I feel like he is doing something. And he's, he's, not- in, he's in the new... Uh, who's the guy who did the fighter? Um, Russell, something. I always forget his name. David Russell. Okay. Is that it? I think he's in... But, uh, I mean, the entire... All of Hollywood's in that next film of his, apparently. But, so, so um, I think it's just really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I get Greta Gerwig vibes from Miranda July. And, and the, yeah, there's a lot of you... Who do you think of Greta Gerwig as an, as an actor or as a director? Because probably, probably depending, more a d- director now. Yeah, but this um, is the thing. I think depending on who you ask that question, you get different answers. Because mm. there are other people that are far more aware of her and Noah Bombach's work. You know, pre Little Women or pre, well, yeah. especially pre Ladybird. I think definitely yeah. um, that's sort of where you start to find a unique directorial voice, and, mm. and and some people do like to always consistently act in their the works they're directing. So that that in itself is its own directing mm. style. It's just a different way, like working with actors and getting kind of the performances you want out of them and, and them, you know, delivering sort of to meet your vision. It's a really interesting balance and can only really purely be achieved. I think with that more traditional way of doing it, you there's, you're a director behind the camera and they're in front of the camera performing. Yeah, no, that's fair. And there's definitely examples both way in terms of directors performing in in their Mm -hmm. own films and it going really well. And there's somewhere it's, not so well. I mean, Tommy Wiseau probably is the greatest example of that. Um, no, but you're right. Yeah, this is Miranda, Miranda July's first feature film after um, I Got Me and You and Everyone We Know and The Future. Those are films that she starred in and directed. This is the first one in which she didn't star in. And, and as someone I'm not really familiar with her other films, but um, any mm. any creative decision she's made in terms of Kajillionaire, I'm a thousand percent for it. But of course, we'll get into that later. Uh, I guess the trivia that I want to point out is that there is a particular one in the film that took 17 takes and we're definitely going to be talking about that scene later in the show which i'm very excited about zeke Hmm. is this film on the 1100 film poster behind you uh it definitely is not (laughs) (laughs) bit of a trick question we got to stop doing recent films it's having the reverse effect (laughs) where we did all these classics that were obviously on the poster because they're classics and now it's the inverse where we're doing all films that based on time and space cannot possibly be on the poster since it doesn't predate 2018. Mm. So that's a bit of a trick question, but that's okay. Last week we did our Marvel extravaganza episode where we did all the phase four stuff. Ended up being our longest episode ever. <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Which, yeah, to get through. yeah. I mean, to be fair, we also had to get through three shows thoroughly mm. and a film of the week. Which yeah. Normally yeah. when we do the first half of the show, we tend to just kind of give no more than a five-minute um, thing. I mean, we talked about this, this, the film of the week that we're, you know, talking about later in the show, briefly yeah. on the show twice, but we've not died. Yeah, that's true. It. So, um, yeah, it did end up being our longest. Um, I think it was really good to just break down each bit systematically, though. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and we got, we got it out of our system, you know. Yeah. So, it's like, that's it. And now, maybe, you know, six months from now, we'll do another... Marvel extravaganza because there's just always more content, isn't there? Absolutely, it never ends that train. But um, just wanted to mention that because, of course, what we've been watching the last week, we've got two weeks to cover because of that. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, I'm personally not going to be breaking away from the superhero genre. <laughs> or, um, oh no! So I've dove into um, two sh- different shows that center around superheroes, but I have to say, our two of one of them, I think, is the best superhero property I've 
seen ever. Ooh, um, high praise. Um, and then the other one is probably definitely sitting comfortably in at least the top three, top four. Like so, I'll start with the one that's you know top three, top four. Um, that's the Amazon Prime show, The Boys, and mm. they've. Um, I think season two came out at the start of this year. Um, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, so I've actually managed to thoroughly um, go through the first season easily, and I've almost finished the second season. Probably will finish it by next week on the show. Um, but to be honest, a um, lot of lot of positives coming out of this. Um, okay. Uh, it stars predominantly uh, Jack Quaid and um, Carl Urban, mm. who you know Carl Urban of a. Uh, you know, sort of our our neck of the woods down here. Down, you know, uh, he's great. Um, it's very gritty and sort of breaks down basically um, what would happen if superheroes really kind of existed in our modern contemporary world and right. how they would be monetized. Sort of honestly, like a dystopian parallel of kind of what the superhero genre has come culturally to us. Mm. Except the only difference is. What if these, you know, these MCU kind of uh, characters were super cor- like super under a corporate's thumb sort of situation? It definitely carries the. What I like about it is it carries elements of sort of the Westworld effect, where it's like this this utopian vision on the surface. As we push down the iceberg, obviously becomes quite dark and dystopian. Right. And of course, Westworld bridges off more into the identity, you know, AI. What is what does it mean to be human? Sort of Blade Runner angle, and this one definitely explores more of the well, the real life implications of having people with these extraordinary powers and stuff, and how corporate entities would absolutely monetize and, and honestly control these superheroes to an extent, and how. Really, it's a collection of human. It's sort of preys on the uh, what if, you know, all of the superheroes were not these larger in life, perfect summations of humankind and aliens, but honestly, were just people that were given these extraordinary yeah. powers. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a really c- cool distinction because they kind of parallel the Justice League um, in the show, and of course, they've all got very, you know, some of them are almost nigh like pa- perfect parallels to members of the the DC Justice League but you know they're they're kind of messed up in the head because they're mm. these you know these people that have uh, superpowers and they you know they basically work for a corporation and the corporation pays their money they think you know they they're doing things like making sure there's always social media coverage when they're saving people when <laughs> in the first 5 minutes That's it's great. like we see one of the which really sets the tone um, for the show's violent side um we see a you know a f- kind of a flash knockoff kill um the main character's girlfriend by running through her to the point where she just evis- gets completely eviscerated yeah to nothing <laughs> um which you just sort of really grasp that oh it's a wow shocking you're, you're yeah. like wow this is the tone and level it's it's a firm r rating and they yeah, both awesome. are but i kind of like this because it's like you know, I've discussed it with a few people off the show, and they say, "Oh, well, they think sometimes the behaviour is a bit extreme," and I'm like, "But is it? Because if I if I was if I thought I was untouchable, it's like there are only certain like there are legitimately good superheroes that yeah. have superpowers, but a lot of them don't. They just appear on the surface as good. It it's and- weird because I, I I'm completely blanking this, but I swear I had a conversation. I cannot remember with who. 
and I cannot remember when, but it feels like within the last day, about absolute power or the feeling of someone feeling like they can get away with, oh, mm-hmm. you know what? I do remember this conversation. It's it's a bit messed up, but um, it's in regard to a lot of the sexual allegations going on at, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the video game company. Um, it's not Activision, is it? I think it might be, but yeah, really messed up stuff. And mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about how people who feel like they can get away with anything will do anything. And and, and it sounds like this is what you're this gonna is. you hit the nail on the head because in the first episode there is legitimately a full blown sexual harassment thing straight off the bat. God, yeah. A new member. <laughs> oh, there's a no. new member of this Justice League knockoff called the Seven, and within the first five minutes of her being there, one of the other superheroes drops their pants and tells, you know, tells her to perform a, you know, does a very sexual deviant act. And and that really sets the tone for the kind of mentality that these, you know, these people that have spent years sort of in these groomed power roles where they are, they feel untouchable and, you know, they're completely and utterly corrupted by that position. And, I mean, I feel like Watchmen touches on it a little bit, but still doesn't yeah, quite yeah, yeah, okay. dive into it as much as it should. Um, this takes it to that next level. And honestly, I, I think it's the most realistic depiction of actually, although dystopian and very myself, very, you know, from my own standpoint, obviously, if I see this as the most realistic depiction, unfortunately, yeah, I'm probably pretty cynical and I've got a half glass empty approach. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, it's like, we, we all love it, Zeke. We, talked, we all love it. We talked about last week on the show where it's like we completely, they completely romanticize and completely break molds and really have lost touch with humanity with the MCU sort of characters to extents, you know? And, right. Well, and, it's it's very, the market audience for the MCU is very specific and, and that's very and, obvious by the sameness of all the shows. And I think and this type of show really tries to deconstruct. Mm. that intense marketing and, and it all they care about are they, they you know there's constant people just pulling strings behind all of these major superheroes and then of course there's you know there's Carl Urban's group this collection of them that are trying to expose the kind of corporate lies and and bring down these superheroes because of at some point in life each of the the quote-unquote the boys mm. um has been wronged by one of them either like they've lost right. a loved one because um of one of these uh, people's like laziness or not lack of careful nature, you know, like there'll be times where we see these quote unquote superheroes going in to save one person, but they kill another 35 mm. in the process, you know, <laughs> and they're, they're obviously because of their untouchableness, their value for life is um, for really the value of human life. It very much has got the whole mutant human mentality again. okay like the, but it sounds the they're out of touch it sounds like completely yeah. i mean they, they they most of them are willing to just completely kill and i've just gotten to quite a big re- revelation in the second season um okay, so you, you haven't finished it yet not the second season okay. but the the first season i have and i obviously got to the re- uh, this revelation in the second season makes more sense a lot mm. of it makes a lot more sense um i don't want to delve too much into it I, Mo- yeah, because I would love to watch it. So, and, and, yeah. and that's it. I would really like you to watch it and kind of bring your take. And maybe in another superhero episode, we can touch on that. Maybe um, mm. in another parallel super conversation about that. Because I think the themes in both of the shows I've been talking about are better performed than anything the MCU has ever put out. And definitely anything that DC's put out. Like Right. And it's it's not about the hyper-violence. I, I sometimes could actually go without that. But at the same time, you kind of need to see 
that violence play out because if these powers were real and we lived in a world where there were people that were super and there were people that weren't yeah, super. Yeah. Well, it's meant to be absurd as, and it's meant to be shocking. Yeah. Like from, and I haven't even seen the show, but from everything I've heard and seen from like commercials, and I was like, yeah, that's clearly what he's doing. Well, if a guy had like laser eye vision and he sliced through someone, it would yeah. be messy to look at. It wouldn't be <laughs> nice and pretty and perfectly cauterized. Where's the blood? Yeah. 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 And I think that that's a really important distinction the show makes. Um, the other one, which mm. I really do think is the best superhero genre entity I've ever watched, is uh, the other Amazon Prime show, Invincible. Right. This uh, is very new, isn't it? This is very new. This has come out this year. Also, um, first eight episodes, it's an animated show um 40 minute episodes or 40 plus episodes so i really like that um because you don't normally see that in that sort of anime style Mm. um you're normally used to the 20 minute sort of segments but i mean some of the voice you know it's uh main characters voice acted by uh steven yoon oh wow uh, obviously walking dead and minari fame now so um he's fantastic and his dad um is a voice actor by J.K. Simmons. So, oh wow, nice! You know, you've already you, <laughs> you say that straight off the bat, and, and his and his mum's actually voiced by uh, Sandra Oh, um, who's, ah yeah, you know, from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, it's um, a good cast. So it's a good cast, and there's, there's quite a few other extra. You know, there's a Seth Rogen cameo in there, and all mm. kinds of stuff like that. So, <laughs> um, it's, what it, I really like about the show is it basically it follows. Um, this kid who it's pretty normalized world there's a lot of superheroes but it does do the same thing you know it shows us the violent act you know the vi- the violentness and honestly the fragility of human life versus the superhero life and what it basically does is it also centers around um uh you know this whole investigation story i don't i'm definitely not going to spoil too much on that show until mm. you watch it because okay. that is a that is a must watch but Honestly, from a thematic point of view, it touches on great father-son sort of stuff, identity, um, and about like a young man trying to kind of find the balance between a superhero life, and sort of touches on a little bit more of the, it's a, it's a more hardcore version of like your your Peter Parker story, like okay, coming age story. But uh, the last episode of that show was one of the most impactful forty minutes like I've ever watched in that mm. genre. Like it just hit every theme. The voice acting just another level like what what steven yoon has done with that performance especially is i mean jk simmons getting him getting angry is just fun to watch really isn't it like that's <laughs> all we pay like to that, see that yeah. channeled whiplash anger energy comes out in this this show and and it's it's absolute dynamite again yeah but, it's all over here is just excellent things especially about the finale so um, so i got no uh, excuse apparently yeah it's uh, i think it got two or three episodes in like they released first three episodes straight off the bat Mm. And as soon as, uh, within that week, they renewed two, season two, season three. Interesting. Because of the, okay. such the positive feedback it got from uh, the episode. But basically, yeah, there's mm. a collect, you know, there's like a shield collective that sort of manage the fatality rates of these superheroes and keeps them in line, but also, you know, kind of builds up counter counter movements just in case the superheroes go rogue and Mm -hmm. like so they're always the one step ahead and it's just such a very intelligent thing and apparently it's you know and i'm not the comic book purist but apparently it's one for one with the comic books like each episode is like an issue so it's very very true to its source material Mm. from what i hear i think the same i think it's the same sort of mentality with um the boys but 
Um, I think that one's had a bit more like film filmic uh, liberalization to it. Is the boys based on like a comic book? I, I assume they all are. I think I would. Okay. Um, I'm gonna look that one because I my thing with the boys is I always sort of assumed it was an original. It'd be really thing. nice if it was. Here we go. Is it based on a comic? The boys was a comic book series yeah. written by Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis. That's mm. a oh, imagine having a name like that and still being successful. Nah, it's good. I'm glad for him. Um, published by Wildstorm from DC Comics before moving to Dynamite Entertainment. All right, so it is based on a it's based yeah. on a comic book. There you go. But I I think yeah they're, they're both of the shows were just excellent. Like I've I've been thoroughly impressed with both of them. What they've been able to do with sort of walking this more realistic depiction line. And I think honestly I I don't think MCU would ever take this step. I think no. there's because of the. It, it comes back to, ironically, mostly to do with focusing around the boys' mentality. It's all about the capitalistic agenda. They'd rather have these clean-cut, baby-faced superheroes. And basically what they've done is they've just taken, like, what if all of those clean-cut superheroes existed, but they were still humans? Right. Um, and not these uh, irrefutably, not like, perfect, good people. Yeah. Um, well, I think, like, this is what you got to do, is if you want to see these, like, darker takes on the genre... You just have to make them. Yeah. Or base them on other things. That's why Kick-Ass exists. Uh, I, you, Disney aren't going to do anything. And we should yeah. ever expect them to change it because that's not what they're... No, because they're, they're trying to get... the They they, they are the corporate entity that is represented yeah. pretty much in the boys. It's it needs like, to exist so that the parody exists. Yeah. And, absolutely. And why, and, why, yeah, change that? <laughs> and I think uh, other than like... And I, I, the reason I like, yeah, like this one, this one, and probably the only film that I put up there with them would be like Logan because mm. it does the same sort of stuff. It really completely destroys the uh, kind of false idolization. You know, I, I always think back to that shot in, is it Batman v Superman, where there are people literally like praying towards Superman. Reaching out. Reaching out. It's so... Creating the outline. Like, yeah, the, the, Zack Snyder loves uh, himself. Like the, yeah, the, the <laughs> biblical parallel. And we've honestly put a lot of them on biblical parallels. And the fact of the matter is, most of them, um, at least in the confine, were humans. They were people. Mm. And people have flaws and make mistakes and do stupid things. And just because they're vastly stronger, you know... Yeah. The only, and I honestly think the only sort of shows that have kind of played around with that, that sort of like, what if these people had super abilities but were still human, were things like Avatar and stuff, where they actually okay. touch a little, you know. <laughs> and I know it's a bit more kid, kid orientated and a bit right. more, but they still, you know, they they humanize them more. I think, okay. and I think it's really important that we have that that fine balance. Um, that's why I like the show so much. I love the idea that we're willing to just completely destroy that perfect image that yeah. the MCU has sort of, you know, had and, you know, people can still have that. And I've, there are characters in the world that completely idolized the superheroes in the, the boys sort of um, cinematic world, but yeah, they were complete. their shrouds were completely broken because of what happened to them. And I all think right. that's important. Well, the reality of it all. Yeah. Sure. That's, so that's, over, uh, that's it for me. So yeah, that's no, fair enough. Well, I'll kick off with another TV show that I watched. I finally watched, the fourth and final season of Atypical. And for those who haven't been following um, the show, or I, I don't know where else I would have talked about this on, on air, I guess, but I've had a really interesting history with this show and that I really loathed the first season. I thought they made a lot of really incorrect decisions in terms of creating a show about an autistic character and specifically starting him at 18 and just where he was sort of in his social capabilities mm-hmm. and 
um, just in terms of like where he was in his life at that stage. And I think what I realized watching season two and three and actually liking the show more and more as it went on is that as much as I hated where they started it, I sort of appreciated how the journey played out from that point. Mm-hmm. And this is meant to be the final season and you can definitely see it from the last episode. It feels like, you know, when you watch like a last season, you sort of, there's a point when you start to feel things wrapping up or ranching up or sort of that in the moment where everything's coming ahead. It happens pretty late. Mm-hmm. It's like episode nine out of 10 when you're like, it just feels, I don't know if that's a, I mean, you know, the show chose to do that. Does it feel like a soft exit or does it feel like, yeah, this is it for um, the show? Well, what I was talking about this to a friend who sort of binged the whole series herself recently. And we noticed that you could really sort of end this show at any season finale because they all sort of end on, on Sam, the main characters taking some sort of, you know, adventurous step forward in his life. You know, whether it's like graduating high school and mm. about to go to college or, you know, the step after that or the step after that. And I won't spoil it, but it's it's one of those things where I think any of those seasons of another, you can sort of just end it because you could always continue that story. It's like, oh, well, he's going off into this bold adventure and, and you know, we're leaving on this hopeful note. Um, but they always could just come with a fifth season, but, like, oh, but here's what happens. Yeah, um, right. So I feel like they can kind of do that. I think it gets away. So it's, it's a bit of a yeah, soft, soft exit. Sort yeah, of situation. I think I think the very last shot in particular is like, okay, I think they knew that this was the end when they shot it. Mm. You're kind of looking for that. Is like, does it end in that way? Yeah, there's definitely a couple of shows yeah. that spring to mind that do that sort of like, yeah, this could be the end of the. Show. I mean, Breaking Bad season four really has that. Yeah, um, and they admitted that that's exactly what um, they were doing. Was they weren't sure if it was going to continue from that point. That's the one that always springs to my mind because you yeah. look at things like Walking Dead, those earlier seasons. They definitely are always like, "Yeah, we're coming back for another season." We're coming <laughs> Very back for confident, another season. yeah. <laughs> um, I think the only season that wasn't was the pilot season that had that like real big dramatic ending. But it oh, was yeah. definitely you know it's a pilot season, so there's a good chance at that point. But yeah. But um, I still think, in in the context of this season, I think it works um, for what it is in terms of where the character arcs go. Um, I liked some more than others. I don't want to get too spoilery, but I will talk about... I always, uh, I think Casey... I mean, this has been the case since it began. I think Casey was easily the, the uh, younger sister of Sam has been the best... I mean, that's their crowning jewel for that show, which is ironic because we talked about last week. Black Widow isn't the star of her own film. Yeah. Um, it goes to the sister character, and, and that's exactly what happens in this show where constantly every season, it feels like the sister character is getting the much more well-rounded arc mm. Um, that's more interesting and is explored in a more nuanced way in terms of her sexuality. And um, I know the actor who's also in um, Bill and Ted Face Music is non-binary. And I was wondering how far they were going to sort of implement that into this season. And I think that I think they sort of had a couple of notes in there without making it that character's arc, like unnaturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I appreciated that. There was a clever line where they, um, the mum's talking to... to um, Casey, Sam's sister, and how, like, when she was a kid, uh, she would, you know, um, it's a long story, but basically it would lead to her, like, swapping the clothes from the, the boy section to the girl section, this clothing store. And I was like, there's a nice little, like, hint there without, mm. like, taking it a whole extra level in terms of the character arc. Yeah. Um, while exploring her sexuality as a character. So I thought, again, I think I think she's the crowning jewel as a character. Did you enjoy the show? whole thing. I think this wasn't my favorite season. I remember walking out of season three being like pleasantly shocked and like, wow, okay, like I really dug it. Um, I think overall this is probably a weaker season. I think in particular Sam's relationship with Paige is so underexplored. Like it got to the point where I was like, 
uh, it's been a while since I've seen the last few seasons, mm. but like it felt like they had gone nowhere, this couple, and that Sam was still being kind of a dick to her, and it's just because he's autistic, and that's why he's a dick to her. So it's like there's been no development for the last few years, and then they have that thing at the end where, oh, but there's an explanation of I love you, so it's all sort of forgiven, even though it felt like they were definitely building to some sort of catharsis mm-hmm. because she felt like she was getting ignored in her life and he was constantly ignoring her and that kind of goes somewhere and then immediately dropped and never comes back like there's stuff like that where i'm like this is ridiculous like you can't mm. do this and then not pay it off you know throughout yeah, right. the entire season so there's stuff like that that really bugs me and you know every now and then you get like a scene that man they must have shot this in five seconds like just like really wooden performances there's a scene where they're driving um this ambulance these two characters and i was like the it, this feels like when we were making Hitched and we had like the green screen driving, but it looked it looked worse in this high production TV show on Netflix. That's bad. Like the shaking and everything just looked like too much. And it just sort of reminded me of that. So there's like little things here and there that really sort of, I don't want to say bug me, but like... Man, trying to get that van into things. the studio. Oh, just that was a fun me, time. Give me, give me flashbacks. <laughs> but look, I think ultimately... I think I I slept on it. You know, I finished it. I slept on it. I woke up and I was like, you know, I think I generally like where all the arcs are headed. I like where they leave Sam off. I especially like where they leave his dad off. Mm-hmm. I think that was something where they didn't really touch on it much, but they left just enough clues throughout the season to learn what the arc was, especially with the dad internally and then in terms of his mm-hmm. relationship with Sam. Um, I thought a lot of that stuff was great. Um, I think this is the kind of show I need to watch it all again. Like, within a week watch the entire series because there's what i guess like 40 episodes i don't know if it was 10 each but this is one of those i could totally do like a two-hour youtube analysis just on this show because there's a lot that i think it does well there's a lot that i think it does horribly um i'm glad i watched it though Mm. you know i I think when you when you look at what sia did (laughs) for the autistic community with with her film music (laughs) <laughs> this this stands out a little better, you know what I mean? Yeah, very <laughs> In fair. comparison, but yeah. Um, the other things I watched, I had to say, I rewatched Gremlins the other day with a few friends, and that film is so funny. It holds up so well. Have you ever seen Gremlins? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. Or oh, Gremlins 2, I ain't seen either. Yeah. Oh, man. I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen Gremlins 2, but... Yeah, it's like that kind of like kid... I don't know if it's a kid film, it's Gremlins. <laughs> um, it's very cute and very uh, humble and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Wholesome. Until about the halfway point. <laughs> and yeah. then it has the most fantastic mid uh, midpoint sort of shift where it becomes like hilariously violent and gory. And, yeah. and it's just so great. It's I haven't so seen funny. that. I haven't seen like... Um, Goonies, yeah, haven't seen like, yeah, yeah. I'm a real, I got a real blacklist from those like 80s, 90s sort of. I've heard Goonies doesn't hold up in terms, like, like in terms of stereotypes, racial commentary, those mm. kinds. Of, I heard it doesn't hold up in that, in that regard. But um, and apparently like Gremlins is a slur in and itself. Um, right. Yeah, I wasn't paying too much attention to that, but um, that it's just such a fun film, man. It's I was I was like mm. I forgot how hilarious this film is. And Jonathan Banks is in it. He plays a cop. <laughs> I did watch one film this week. Oh, okay. But well, it's it's in it's in the drink to cringe category, so I was going to let it slide. Oh, uh, okay. Well, uh, we we can end on that if you want. I've got one other film I watched. Okay. Um, well, a couple, but some of them I I can't talk about for a couple of reasons. Sure. Uh, the last one I'll mention is Envoy Shark Cull, 
which of course I mentioned a couple of weeks was it I think two weeks ago. I saw your uh, saw your post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, for those who don't know, this is a film that yours truly was involved in. My name did appear in the credits. My footage was used, albeit very late in the film. I was starting to get very <laughs> anxious, man. <laughs> Eighty minutes in, I'm like, "Where's my footage, man?" But it came, it came, and it was glorious. And they used a shot that. Where you were there with me. Oh, yes. One of the shots made it. So, so it was my credit. <laughs> I, was, I, was, uh, I was beer assistant. Exactly. Coordinator. What was the credit they gave me? They gave me um, contributed footage. Why are you filming me, you bastard? <laughs> they gave me contributed footage. They should give you contributed footage assistant or attendee or, so, or something. <laughs> oh, man. No. Um, but yeah. No, that was great. It was a bit rewarding. I thought. So this is the thing. And I'll say this, because I, I wouldn't call them my friends, but I, I've obviously got contacts with them. That's how, obviously, my footage is in the film in the first place. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think it was a solid doco. It does what it needs to in terms of giving you the information. I feel like I, lo- I know a lot more about shark culling and how Australia in particular is very Australian-focused, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense, because it's actually one of the only countries in the world that even has any of these systems with like the nets of the beaches that like entangle sharks and stuff. Yeah. We um, got a lot of sharks. Yeah, we do. Mm. And um, it's very, you know, like pro shark, pro life for the shark sort of, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess is how I would describe it. Um, and it really, you know, hones in that and, and all of their interviewees are very much in support of that and defending that. Mm-hmm. And even some who've nice little editing trick where we're seeing a piece to camera with someone and then it halfway through the interview, it sort of cuts back. Um, or we step back and we see that he's actually an amputee. He's lost an arm and a leg. Um, yeah, he's still sort of on the side of protecting the sharks, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so it doesn't really do those things that uh, best best uh, comparison, which I only saw recently as well, The Last Horns of Africa, which is also sort of a nature animal um, or pro-animal life documentary. Um, and they both sort of have a foot in Australia. Obviously, Last Ones of Africa takes place in Africa, mm-hmm. but there are Australian filmmakers involved in making that film. So I think they're pretty one-to-one comparisons, to be honest. And when you compare it to that, it didn't have sort of those subjects that you would follow, like the dynamicism of when you're watching a documentary and it's just B-roll, uh, you know, talking head, B-roll, talking head, occasional graphic that is sometimes like really hard to read you know when mm-hmm. there's just like too much information on the graphic or there's too many graphs being drawn out yeah. you just sort of don't interpret it properly or they have a quote on screen that's different from what's being said out loud and your brain just sort of doesn't mm-hmm. have enough capacity to split the two um so there's a bit of that um the dynamicism wasn't there of, of actually tracking people doing their day-to-day jobs so it sort of struggled in terms of the pacing because that's all they had was talking head b-roll talking head b-roll yeah um even though the footage is great it's gorgeous Especially my footage. Mm. <laughs> I will say, it looked a little bit more pixelated than uh, I would have liked. Really? Yeah, we shot it in 4K. That was all 4K footage. <laughs> ah, but, you know, stretched out in a big screen. I get it. Yeah. I get it. It is what it is. Um, it still, like, looks natural, though. Like, it still looks good with the footage. Like, it look, yeah, it looks part of it. But, um, yeah, so, like, I can kind of pick it apart from those angles. But in terms of delivering the message and, and honing in what it's saying about sharks. I think it does, you know, a great job in that, and I would recommend you go see it. There's one moment where they're actually showing how other animals or other marine life is getting caught in the nets. It's not just sharks, which mm-hmm. could easily just swim through the majority of the nets. Luckily, the the barriers that we use here in WA that my footage was involved in, they're actually... That's why it's at the end, because it's the example of the alternative, what you can actually do, because sharks don't get caught 
in those barriers and they actually mm. do reach the bottom and, and hit the top of the ocean and it's just like a better system overall that the East Coast just can't get right for whatever reason. But then you have like these stingrays and these turtles and these whales and you know all the other marine life getting caught in the nets. And there's like maybe a four-minute sequence where they just show that footage and let like the sound underwater, which who knows how much of that is sort of constructed underwater sound, how much they layered in the edit. Mm. Um, but it just it's footage that speaks for itself and it's heartbreaking. And I wish the film did a little bit more of that. That's the dynamicism you need where it's like, Let's not have a talking head for five seconds. Yeah, let's, let's let this scene breathe and play out, and the footage speaks for itself. And um, the moment the film has that, thankfully, but I wish I had a little bit more of that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I totally recommend it. And yeah, you look look out for your boy Jake in the credits, or look at my Instagram page. Yeah, that yes. wor- that works too. It was on. There. <laughs> it was on. There. Had my phone out. I was surprised by how many people were were there, because I've not seen any like promotion for this at all. Oh. That's was, good. Yeah, but there were a few a few couples. Like, this is is this a couple film? <laughs> people I saw people resting their heads on their partner's shoulders and I was like, okay. It's I guess pretty it's, messed up content. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh that's, yeah. that's good though. Yeah, no, I'm proud. I'm happy and uh it's out there, so Groovy. If you can go see it. Well, I don't have too much to add. Um I watched a film called Frat Star. <laughs> it's as bad as it sounds. I was gonna say, <laughs> as bad as it sounds. Um, this is easily. I, I mean, I've talked about the drink to cringe game on the show. Yes, you most certainly um, have. <laughs> friend of the show, Morgan um, Gillette, has become probably my go-to to watch these kinds of bad films with. Right, and we call it like we go mining through Netflix and and Prime and Stan to the, for these horrific films that are normally. A particular, uh, they're normally the best ones are these college movies. These ones that just have, that are clearly written and directed by some middle-aged man or woman, um, <laughs> who is just trying to rekindle some form of, um, I don't know what. Remember when we found out Swiped was directed by a woman? <laughs> that's exactly. This is in the was, exact same vein of ignorance that Swiped has. It was the biggest shock of of the of cinema. I think so. <laughs> uh, this one, uh, Frat Star, was definitely directed by a dude. Um, okay. my knowledge. All right. Um, I think oh, you never know, Zeke. Never know. I don't want to really go back down the rabbit hole, but <laughs> basically, it follows a guy who joins a fraternity, and it shows the dark side of fraternities. Oh no! The hazing and the trials and the horrific amounts of misogyny, and of course, they took it the dark side of the the sorority. It, it honestly, it's just as bad and sexist and misogynistic as swiped, and mm. it's got the same level of just bewildering. How did all of these people agree to be in this film? <laughs> money. Uh, it's all money. No I don't know how much no. money they've been thrown at, but yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot and of... Noah Santiago is now in like a ton of like half... I mean, still crap Netflix films, but I'm sure he gets right. a decent paycheck for them. So oh, that's it. Um, so people yeah, maybe... Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I'm watching them. Yeah. So I'm just enabling them, aren't I? <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. You want to have a nice drinking game film? Can we just point out for a fact? I know we're not uh, in a cu- in a matter of a couple weeks. Kissing Booth Three comes out on Netflix. I noticed that. <laughs> I was looking at stuff to like what's coming, you know, next week to cinema and streaming. I'm like, damn, that was a quick turnaround. Yeah, Kissing Booth Part Three. And I'm not gonna lie, I saw it come up on my Netflix when I was searching because I normally start with the drink to cringe game that I perform with my friends. Is I start with a, a go to bad film I know like Swiped and now Frat Star and then I go from there and I comb my way through these these bad films and 
Kissing Booth is one of my go-to uh, starting starting ones. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Kissing Booth Part 3 and I got, I'm not going to lie, in the car. You I like, lost my mind. I went, <laughs> yes, Kissing Booth 3 is out. <laughs> and then it turns out it comes out August 11th, I think. So I'm going to have to wait a couple more weeks for my review of Kissing Booth 3. That's all right. Maybe I can get the first two in before then. You'll be happy to know this one is less than two hours. So that's good. That last one was long. Yeah, it was like it was, two and a half hours oh, or something ridiculous. It was... It was a slog. Because, um, like, the top review on Letterboxd for Kissing Booth 2 was, like, Hitchcock films that are shorter than this, and it's, like, almost all of his films. <laughs> I just... Yeah. It was so long. Um, these films are... They're fun, because they remind you of... of I like watching these films as a reminder Two hours, that 11 art, minutes. That art can be less than two hours. Um, and then you've got Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Uh, <laughs> That feels like five hours, I'm guessing. Yeah, look, see, those kinds of films, they're not even fun to watch because you're just... Right. You, like, that's not a drink-to-cringe film. A drink-to-cringe film is, is like Frat Star. So if you want to add it to Zeke's drink-to-cringe list, that one would make the cringe list. There you so, go. I should times. start doing... Maybe we should do that letterbox, the cringe list. <laughs> yeah, just make a list. It's easy. I know we thought about one time... This is a long time ago... Mm. Um, before we started even, I think, Cinemassage podcast, or we might have just started it, we were thinking about, because there's a streaming platform that does free films called Tubi, and it has, like, all the most horrifically bad, like, Titanic 2 and, okay. and stuff like that, and we thought of potentially doing those really bad films and doing, like, a really short podcast, um, calling it Tubi Continued. Right. I do vaguely remember this. Um I, I'm, Cause my like guess th- is that I wasn't that on board with them. <laughs> no, because I feel like the only way of doing a podcast like that is you wouldn't want people talking about the film after the fact. You'd want them to have live reacts to those sort of kind of films. Right, it has and, to be like a live commentary. And to be honest, I don't think me watching a film for 90 minutes live reacting is, is would be that entertaining to anyone. Um, mm, you never know. You know, I like having my educated, concentrated discussion. Yeah, that's uh, fair. But who knows? Maybe I'll just do that. So I'll just have a stream with Zeke. Have a stream with <laughs> Zeke. Oh, no. That's mine. <laughs> nah, the trademark's probably expired. You can take it. You can take it. Uh, well, um, I don't really have any career updates, sir. I mean, that was kind of it. it was my Envoy shout yeah. out. That was really it, I guess. But um, well, I guess it's the perfect time yeah. to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Kajillionaire. You're addicted to them. They're my parents. In what sense? We split everything three ways. We have since I was little. I don't want to do it that way this time. Don't. You want us to be false, faking people. We don't make pancakes or wrap up little birthday presents or call you sweetheart or baby. Do a little dance. I always thought it was insulting to treat you like a child. And I thought we agreed on that. We can only ever be how we are. This is the way the big one starts. If you're lucky, you'll get crushed. And then you'll, you'll just die right then and there. I'm Mr. Only. Oh, 
Dolio, the daughter of two scam artists, plots a new scheme to pay their rent. But when her parents invite a stranger, Melanie, to join their plan, Dolio's world is turned upside down. I think that's the only time they refer to old Dolio as just Dolio. Yeah. I feel like she even calls herself old Dolio in most scenarios. It's, um, yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm with you on that, actually. Very odd. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'll call it Dolio. So this was your favorite film of last year. Uh, it was not, not quite. It oh, was top five. Top five. Sorry. It was easily one of my favorite films of the year. And I got to say, rewatching it last night, I was like, man, I almost bumped my score up again to four and a half. I adore this film so much. Mm. I couldn't. I li- I could did not. This take, type but this took out your best enough. of twenty twenty. Because we excluded ones that were in the golden oh, chalk top. Yeah, so with our golden chalk top, we gave it to Baby Teeth collectively. Yes. Um, but this might have been like my one or two um, in there. Because I, 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 I know we had our best of 2020 that obviously was excluded from the... Because you couldn't do a film of the week right? in yeah, the yeah. best of 2020. I think you gave it there. Well, I have a list on Letterboxd, my personal rank of 2020 films. It cracks number four, so I put, like, The Father and stuff in front of it. Sure. Um, Swallows of Kabul, that's really hard to find. I would love to rewatch that and see how it holds up. Mm-hmm. That's currently my number one. Wow. It was an incredible little animated film. But, um, no, I think I adore Kajillian. Like I said, I could not type notes fast enough. There was so much going on in every shot, every line of dialogue. I just adored the, the twists and turns of the plot, and it was... You know, upon a second view, I wouldn't say I was incredibly rewarding a second mm-hmm. time, but there were lots of little things in there, and knowing where the story was going, knowing what the film's actually about in terms of old Dolio's journey through intimacy or learning to accept intimacy, and we're going to spoil the hell out of this film, so I Absolutely. recommend you watch it. I mean, I think right it's now. the yeah, it's the it's the learning of intimacy, and it's also kind of learning kind of family dynamics too, mm-hmm. and how. Um, like the idea, the ideology of love, really, um, whether that be f- family love or a romantic love of some kind. You yeah, know? like paternal or romantic, as we I think. That, yeah, and... paternal is probably a better way to describe it. Paternal intimacy on top of um, romantic intimacy, um, and then the the kind of the discussion of materialism mm. and the contradictory mm. nature of of humans, really. Um, yeah, well, there's there's two. Well, there's one character in particular that's very contradictory in terms of his thoughts and rants about materialism, about the human race sort of going through the bureaucracy machine and being, you know, recorded and printed in government files and all of that, the rants that, that Robert goes on, of course. Um, but I think he turns out to be the biggest hypocrite of them all. While I think there's another character in particular who we assume upon meeting seems kind of materialistic, but then... You know, the, her last line, I think it's her last line, is who cares, you know, in regards to her um, materials. Mm. And I think it's it's kind of hard. For, I, I want to stray away from spoiler discussion, but it's just so hard because everything in this film weaves together so well in terms of where all the characters head out and how the plot moves forward. I just, I think it's so brilliant, you know, and I compared it to Parasite and I hated doing it because it was like, I feel like it's so easy to compare things to Parasite just because they're good. Yeah. But I wanted to compare it because... Like, I think the, it's got the, an apt... It's got an apt stance on being like Parasite. I mean, these... Yeah. But there are particular... The there plot, are plot, I feel like. Yeah, there the are particular scenes that are... You could... 
parallel right right next to them. I think mm. particularly, especially if you're accounting majoritively the first half of Parasite, then yeah, there's okay. definitely bits and bobs in there for sure. I mean, we can. I mean, you can go back to that conversation on that episode in particular and how we talk about when that sort of that film does also swerve you a little bit. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's exactly it. It's a major swerve. And yeah, like obviously you can, you can tie in terms of like the economical stuff and, you know, penny pinches and, and people trying skimming. to extract money, skimming, all of those things. Like it's all in there. Yeah. But when I talk about parasite and compare it to this film, that none of that's not, none of what I'm thinking of. It's just mm-hmm. like the pure cinematic journey. If Rosie, feel and as someone who went to the cinema and watched this film, completely blind virtually no clue what this film was mm-hmm. about it was just such a joy because i mean i love that i the concept already of a family of yeah of penny pinches like you get so invested early on from the idea of it's low risk low reward you know they're not going on these huge oceans 11 heists you know they're breaking into these little vaults and, yeah, well, and the, selling the postal back, service. Yeah, yeah, postal service. They're selling back plushies with little receipts. They're trying to get paybacks on fifty dollar vouchers. It's low risk, low reward. But as they spend time, it's like, oh man, they wasted the day and they only made like twenty bucks. You know, yeah. you kind of get you aligned with them as an audience, and I think that's really interesting because they're they, especially the parents, they're kind of horrible people, and they never redeem themselves. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, that this film kind of resonates with you as much as it does. Cause mm. I liked it. Um, but what I liked, I think, and maybe this is, you know, like sort of the, if you look at the parasite side of it, um, with how that they, that this poorer family in, you know, slowly injects themselves into this richer family's life systematically. Mm. Um, the caper side of all of that is actually quite, um, entertaining in the hustle and it definitely yeah. hooks you in because it gives you that more Ocean's Eleven feel that this family is systematically working their way into um, roles when they, you know, when we met them, they were sitting in this little, little, um, like little um, yeah, well, they squalor like and a little folding pizza home. boxes trying to get, pen, you know, pennies for pounds sort of situation. Mm. Whereas um, it, it's funny that you, um, you know, you, you're kind of, hooked in that sort of sense because i always feel like like you said it's like the the time wasting factor of them really kind of actually dumbs down that they're, they're, they're not smart at all their intellect is is, no. is a particularly you know um, there's a specificity to their thinking you know but you're right it's like when when he says oh this is this is not a cheap tie it's a funny line because it's such a ridiculous line. It's well, we, a ridiculous we take yeah Teresa and robert uh, yeah. you know played by richard jenkins and deborah winger respectively respectively, they never come across as intelligent because it's old Dolio who has like all of the, the, the plan with the, the air, um, yeah, the air, airline insurance, insurance that's all her. Yep. Um, yeah, a lot of the major heists and by major, I meant that they could claim $1,500 on lost baggage. Like that was like her, her thing. And, um, I think it, it's so interesting because, I, I find her performance, her her robotic and, mm. you know, at time, particularly in the earlier stage of the film, kind of subhuman sort of situation where okay. she's just completely robotic in a, in a persona. She almost just... Her personality is like not having a personality, basically. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing. I don't know you... where that came from. See, for me, what intrigues me with that performance, when I say I don't know where that came from, I, I don't understand why she... 
is so inhuman in the earlier stages, I guess. Like, why she's so blanket of mm. emotions and is not able to... And I know that could be a product of how she's raised, but I, it confuses me a little bit, right. I think. Well, that, she's that, almost that, machine-like when you, she... I mean, see, she systematically I, robs that uh, post office where she does the barrel roll and she goes up to the door and she opens it and she unlocks it. Yeah, like, you see, I never thought of... Rob- there's definitely a stiffness to it, but I think you say she has no personality. She was robbed of that personality because she was not shown that tender love and she was grown up to do this very specific thing, mm, very almost as a leech. And and I think the reason I, I freaking love this performance so much, and, and part of it is, in a weird way, I know a guy who is almost exactly like she. He sounds exactly like her. He behaves exactly like her. He has that same sort of flinching mentality when someone's too close. He would, like, grab their arm yeah. out of the self-protective thing. I know that guy, and I'm not going to say his name. Yeah, you know, he, he doesn't listen to the podcast or anything, but it was just so eerie, like, even the voice work. And I was like, the fact that there's some sort of, like, obviously, it might be a little too much for you, but when I was watching it, I just thought of this guy that I know, and I'm like, wow, like, Evan, Evan Rachel Wood, this is, oh, it's, there's something about it that's so clever and so distinctive to mm-hmm. me. I, I don't I loved it. I loved it. And it, this and it, Evan Rachel yeah. Wood from, uh, probably more prominently Westworld fame, so <laughs> get amongst that. Um, no, oh, I've been a fan of her since that first season, yeah, in which awesome. she does bring robotic tendencies to that role okay. obviously it's way more grounded in literally the sci-fi concept that she mm. her character is what they call in that show a host an android robot so she has to snap from that personality that she's been programmed to to this robotic mode on a whim um, in that show and there's multiple characters that do that snap perfectly really well it's okay. like her and um, Jeffrey Wright who's a mm. major part of that show too they're probably the two cornerstones of that uh, that particular show. And, you know, you've got Ed Harris and Anthony Hopkins in that first season. But she is really great. I really like seeing her on, on my... She's got a um, kind of a... She's, it's amazing that she can do that monitor. And I definitely think, obviously, Miranda July has probably looked at her performances in Westworld and that has played into the casting. I think yeah. it would be really interesting if you watch some of those scenes that she does where okay. she snaps between it because it's... It's in that sort of where she's able to do that real, complete and utter withdrawal from society sort of um, coldness to her. And, right. Um, I think it's it's great that you have... Maybe that's why it's such an impactful character for you because you can associate with someone that's like that in real yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I sort of... I bought it I'm, I'm blessed with a lot of bubbly personal- personalities <laughs> in my life. So having that, that level of just withdrawal kind of is is a bit stunting to me yeah um, no but i guess that's it is this and, and, and this is the only person i really know who behaves like that almost on a cartoony level yeah but like i've been able to humanize this this guy who i've been friends with since pre-primary you know for a long 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 time mm-hmm. and even when i was watching this in the theater i was like this is i almost said his name just now but like, this is him and I, I, I think there was something so specific about the way her personality was robbed and the way that she just doesn't comprehend, as a character, doesn't comprehend tender feelings and she desires them. And she says, I'm trying to find the quote she uses because I've obviously been using the word intimate. I think intimate's a perfect word for it. Um, oh, God, I can't find the... um. 
exact quote that I'm looking for. She says it in the um sort of the uh, the parental meeting that they have or the mother's meeting. Um, something that she just completely lacks. Mm. Yeah, I I I think her character is excellent. I think there's something about when she has to turn her back on her parents. First off, there's a jealousy there with Melanie, who we haven't really talked about yet, but there's something so interesting about the relationship the parents have with Melanie, but then you have Evan Rachel Wood, you have old Dolio jealous of it because there are hints of, even though it sort of crosses romantic, it gets a bit weird because there is sort of that, there's that moment where they almost propose a freeway to her, to Melanie. Yeah. That's a strange scene. I love it. So... Um, (laughs) But then there's almost like a mixture of what kind of love it is because it's like, well, that... Is that a romantic interest? Are they sexually attracted to Melanie? But then old Dolio's... She perceives it as like a motherly love, you know, calling her hun. Mm. And, I mean, that scene... There is something I want to talk about with that scene specifically. But she says the mother... Or is it Patricia? Is that her name? It is... Oh, uh, Teresa. Teresa, close enough. Um, Teresa says that that's fake. And that it would be fake of her and phony to pretend like she loves her daughter or that she has these sort of tender emotional feelings. And I'm wondering where that comes from them from the parents. They don't need to answer that question necessarily. Like we see it, we know these characters, mm. we know how they are, but I don't know. I, just, I find it this interesting juxtaposition where you have them, especially Robert, who's so paranoid, uh, paranoid about the bureaucracy side of it and the fact that when she's caught on camera in that postal office, he's like, that's it, you're done, you're in the system, you know, good luck. But it's like, why do people fear bureaucracy? It's for freedom. They want freedom. But it's almost this ironic thing where he's stolen that away from his daughter because his daughter doesn't understand what it is to be freedom, to have your nails painted or to enjoy alcohol without it just being purely a healing mechanism, which is what they talk about on the plane. Um, They... uh, would you say the parents are almost more interesting than old Dolio? I mean, but in what way do you mean? Like, just asking questions about them. Like, why are they the way they are? Like, old Dolio, we know. We see it. We see it with the relationship with the parents. Par- I was going to say they think they're just parasites, but I <laughs> don't want to tie too much to that one. No, I think nah. it's honestly, it's one of those mentalities that I think it's really important that they criticize and critique, particularly um, uh you know, Robert, um, how he criticizes the materialistic nature of society and right. goes on those big tirades about the government. And, and then the problem is in, in society, and particularly American society, and I really do want to make this prominent distinction, I mean, American society, okay. um, there's a big problem because the top and the bottom are monolithically far apart. Now, you know, right. we have obviously a problem like that in Australia and it's in the UK. It's a Western world thing. But... In America, the rich are astronomically rich. rich. Yeah. And the people at the bottom, the poor, are astronomically poor. The gulf is, the spectral gulf is just next level there. And it's when it's, that's when it's really important when you're talking about that sort of capitalistic agenda that there would be people that are at the bottom that have been pushed down. And yeah, you can absolutely take a classist reading that rich people are snobby and horrible and do push the lower classes down. So they're not wrong in that. But then, there's also that um, kind of dog-eat-dog world with the people that are sitting at the bottom. The fact mm. that, you know, Robin and Teresa are not paying the rent to 
clearly a man that is not wealthy by any yeah, stretch. He, he cries every time he hears the news that his friend's not coming in. Like, he's legitimately not a wealthy person. And and yet, as soon as they get the opportunity to have the littlest bit of money, the littlest bit of leeway, what's the first thing that they do? They see they a go, hot tub. Yep, they go for the hot tub. Exactly. And it's like, so the, the fact of the matter is they're not so much like... Um, the, the, the family unit that, that the parasite family is that the fact that they actually all work together and yeah, mm. they do technically, you know, leech off the bottom, but then parasite does take that turn where they very much go and they, and they are also, I mean, that family is willing to throw other families at the same class down the same rabbit hole, but the right. Rich- but the, but the internal family in parasite, this is a good point is like, yeah, they're a poor family who are sort of screwing over other families or other people to weed their way into mm. those jobs. This is what Parasite we're talking about. But they're all in it for each other. They love know? and care for each other exactly. very much to and the point where they do very drastic behaviour at the the, yeah, the climax the of that of film, film yeah. because of the classist point of view that that rich family has of that poor family. You know, it comes back to the smell scene yeah. in that one. And, and the comparison here is that the internal family, there is no love there. No, you know, and we—I mean—it's the last thing the parents do. It's the last act they do against old Dolio. Is they're not a family anymore. It is over, mm. you know. And that, and the fact—I mean—we can jump into that. The fact that they orchestrate this emotional scene at the dinner table to try and, you know, after giving old Dolio the presents and trying to appease to her and you know say, oh, well, you know, we're sorry and we were wrong. It's all an act, and yeah. they rob them blind, and that, that's the last thing we learn about these characters. And mm-hmm. they're scumbags, and they're hypocritical, and they're assholes. Yeah, no, it's exactly <laughs> but they're fascinating. <laughs> they are fascinating. I, I think you're more fascinated by them than I am. I actually okay. just like I think I have a very monochromatic way of looking at this. Mm. I think that they are just horrible people that have raised. Unfortunately, because they've got, you know, this kid. I mean, the, the fact that they burden this kid's name with some homeless man that won the lottery. I mean, <laughs> this, I mean... Yeah, it's imprinted on her. That they've, they've given her clothes that are very clearly um, probably just Robert's old clothes mm. or, you know, Teresa's old clothes. She doesn't own anything of her own. No, no. It's a um, freeway split, quote-unquote, but it's not really. Yeah. All of their hair goes down, you know, almost to their legs... Yeah. They haven't had a haircut probably. She's probably never had a haircut in her life because yeah. it costs too much. And the fact that the only person that's goodwilled to her is actually the one that probably has the most out of all four of them. Mm. Um, and yeah, being well, the- Teresa's character, who, you know, is not wealthy by any means, but comparatively to the other three, of course, she's got the most. Um, and she's actually the one who loses the most. You mean Melody? Melanie, sorry. Yeah, okay. Gotcha, Beg my gotcha. I was very confused. Beg, Beg <laughs> Melanie's character has yeah. the most. Yeah. And, and loses lose, the most. And right. loses the most. And yet is, like you said, more potently, the one that says it doesn't matter at the end. Yeah. Yeah, she says, who cares? And I think when we first meet Melanie on the plane, we sort of don't know what to make of her. Is, is she sort of this... Talks a lot. Talky, mm. klutzy, you know, gives away all this information. Because that's initially I thought, oh, they're going to scam her. But no, they bring her into the fold. And again, is this just because they have... What is their interest in this girl? It's kind of hard to tell initially because we, do we believe these characters are... Oh, okay, well, here's a fourth member who's going to help us scam. Mm-hmm. Or is there something more to it? And I guess you well, could the say the probably whole... The, hmm? the, the, probably the threesome angle. Yeah, you could yeah. say from the very beginning that's what it was, maybe. Yeah. But it's it's interesting. And 
I love her progression where we realize like, oh, well, we should look down at her because she's materialistic. She, you know, she dresses her phone up in glitter and all of these things and does her fingernails or, or her nails or whatever. But I think that's part of of old Dolio's opening up when she sees the nails and that's such an intimate scene where everything slows down and the lighting is very sunsetty mm. and the music turns it turns into a piano score which up until that point has been very sort of deep bass the the yeah. music's absolutely incredible in this film but i think it starts to embrace the fact that she uses her money and her life to enjoy things as opposed to just scamming and collecting money for the sake of collecting money yeah i think the the important takeaway from this film mm. is I don't think it's an anti-materialistic piece at all. No. Um, and whereas I actually think Parasite to a degree is, um, because what that film really shows is materialism corrupts basically. It, it corrupts because we see a poorer family rise up and then exploit a richer family and then we see the wealthier family look down on the poorer family. So it's very much showing that the centrepiece of power is wealth um, to the point where they deliberately go well, a flight of stairs dictates whether you sit in the basement or whether you sit in the house, right. basically. Um, See, but I don't know if that's necessarily materialism because, first off, I think the rich family is just ignorant more than they necessarily actively look down on poor families. I mean, they're just ignorant of the pain, where it's like, why don't they just go get jobs without actually understanding, well, this is why they can't get jobs and this reason, this reason. I think they're just True, ignorant True, but then family. there's the thing like the smell, like the... Yeah, yeah, but the, I mean that's ignorance. I'm saying dumb things, almost not even meaning to be mean. I think mm, it's tricky. I, mean, it's I agree. It's interesting. You think that's yeah, ignorance? That's a very positive way of looking at them. I'm, I'm just like, yeah, no, they think they're scum. No, so. but the, like, I don't. They're not portrayed as evil at all in that film. I think, I think the parents yeah, sure. are portrayed as more evil in this film than in Parasite. Absolutely, yeah. I 100% agree with that. I think these films. But what I'm saying is, it's 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 like you said, it's um, and that's why I think this film's not anti-materialism because they they I think the whole thing is to a point it it's happy to point out the fact that material like overindulgence and materialism can corrupt people and we can get lost in it quite easily and we still need yeah. to worry you know we still need to focus on the most intimate relationships in our life because but what it's showing is what it is is it's challenging that whole. Honestly, that whole, like, um, thing from, like, Scrooge, right? Like, the whole thing <laughs> that the poor family doesn't have it all together just because they're the poor family and he's the rich one that lives by himself, in right. fact. You know, like, the fact is that these poorer these poorer families, if they're given, you know, they're still neglect, can be neglectful and stuff like that. And I think that's a really important sort of... The, 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 right. the fact that this family isn't a unit is really important. It's an important feature of this film. Yeah, well, it's it's internal conflict, and it's and it's um old Dahlia realizing she's been screwed over, and I think you're right. I think the film isn't bashing materialism mm. because ultimately it's the character who is seemingly the most materialistic, and and you know has a nice apartment with all her pretty things, is the one who doesn't care that she loses it. It's the family who pretend and preach that materialism is bad yet, that yeah. end up taking everything out of greed and self righteousness, and as a big middle finger to their own daughter and i that's why i think it's not a slant against materialism but i sure. think that's it's an interesting way to to look at it i do love the production design of just like the presence laid out in a line yeah it's like you know when i was watching gremlins the, so the dad in gremlins is an inventor and it kind of feels like between that and back to the future part two 
80s films had a tendency to just like make stuff mm-hmm. just to like impress audiences like oh here's like this inventor and all of these wacky things he's made mm-hmm. and our production designer can go wild on this film and it felt like in a more subtle way they had a similar deal on this film where even just like the presence lined up and I, I just even like the set choices like having mm. the the uh, the office apartment because it's very clearly an office complex. Yes, it is. You're right. Not yeah. a not an apartment, and then they the sleep foam in cubicles. and the foams coming through the wall because, yeah. it, um, and then having to pat it out, and then the fact that they leave it for a long period of time and it just overflows <laughs> completely. Yeah, her alarm goes off on the plane. It's all yeah. overflowing. It's it's funny because like that's. I love that motif so much as visually of letting the mess just like spread. Mm-hmm. But this film also has a very clear motif of the tremors of like the constant shaking that happens. I think it happens like the bar happens in the opening mm-hmm. scene. Um, and then more prominently it happens um, in the, the bathroom at the gas station, like the big yes. one they call it. Is there, before we talk about that scene, I'm just wondering what you thought the, like the motif or the point was of these tremors. Like, what's it? It's definitely saying something about the wider story. And I'm wondering if it's like a control thing. I don't know if it's necessarily thing spiraling. Yeah, I think it's like control. a chaos and con- like it could be a yeah. chaotic control thing, like the ability to let go. Maybe, perhaps a let. I think like when you just re- what resonated with me just there was like when the foam was overflowing, like mm. letting the mess fall in its place, right? Um, and, um, sort of, maybe it was this overarching, I think the most important thing is, is, is Dolio's reaction after the aftershock that she just loves life and Mm. she just completely is sort of a rebirth. She has, yeah, she's euphoric and, and honestly like overindulgent and over ecstatic. I mean, all it was, (laughs) was nothing more than a tremor on, on the California San Andreas fault. Um, and I think maybe it was that sort of like. You know when you know when Robert's character is always alluding to, oh, it's, it's the the big one's coming, and then when you know Dolio thinks that this is the big one, it's like suddenly that overarching shadow might have finally dissipated because she thinks the big one's gone, right. come and gone, and maybe that was maybe more a metaphor for the control that her parents had on her because they were able to put that fear in her. Yeah. Um. Even in just a, as a, yeah, like a metaphorical sort of sense too, like um, the yeah, that that's what I'm yeah. You're saying that the fact that like the parents have implemented this this state of fear and mind in her head, yeah, and that it almost all is in her head. It's it's obviously not because the other characters are talking about it, but I think that's part of it. Is it's something that the parents planted from an early age that is now gone mm. in this sort of rebirth moment very ethereal scene with the stars yeah coming up it's all sensory you know with their voices and and, and old dolly's horrified she's dying you know mm. and she spouts all of these like lies about melanie because she's you know she's becoming vulnerable and so, oh well you know i was always going to scam you this is part of the plan um i just i think i love that it's such a perfect mm-hmm modern day postmodern well, visualization almost, of it rebirth. Is, is it, yeah it's a complete and utter detoxification of her mm. she said lets out all of this toxic insulting stuff to melanie and, and still at the end of the day melanie forgives her and pushes through because yeah. she really does see that her mind has been completely poisoned by her parents rhetoric and their ideologies and i think that that's what that ability of sticking through that sort of stuff and is so yeah. why it's so important in the latter stages and that's um, and that's sorry. That's another point to um 
her performance is she still sort of has that raspy voice and like that stiffness, but still is able to convey excitement and like this like wonder of life as mm-hmm. she's walking around ecstatic and that. Like I'm yeah. glad that she sort of didn't change. And I think it's important, especially when you take it to the latter stage of the film. It's like Melanie could have walked away at any point, and mm-hmm. or like we said, we've said quite a few times that she loses the most um, out of this this con, this scam by the parents and stuff. Yet it's still the one that forgives, and is also the one that gives. Dolio some sense of patoral, like patriarchal hope mm. because of the amount of money they get refunded from the presence. You know, the fact that it's meant to equate to one third of the remaining money, which I think was something like Oh 30. my God, you're right. I did not realize that. Um, I was paying more attention to the net, the net place being $40. Yeah. That did not click for me until just now. That's exactly one third of the money. Yeah, so then that's the important sort of distinction is... Because it oh, was of course. whether they chose to do that, and that's and that's what they Spend said that, that it's money. like if if it's more, then they love you. If it's not, they don't love you. And if it's the the this right amount, then it's sort of opened to well, they're 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 kind of sitting on that neutral sort of. There's hope, yeah, and it's the idea of hope. For some I reason, think. they just passed by me. Um, because that's sort of what you do when you've completely severed ties with particular members of your family, or particular members of family have betrayed you. You can't really say to someone, "Oh, well, they'll never love you again, or they'll ne- you'll never see them again," because right. it's just the wrong. It's obviously not in Melanie's character's nature, and to be honest, you can see how much it's fundamentally broken Dolio as a character. So, yeah. um, I think the fact that yeah, it's exactly one third is the sort of that essence of hope. It's a very slim hope of redemption for her family, right. but what it shows is they're capable of some form of emotional attachment. I guess, yeah. I think, because obviously this is the very final scene. It's the first time. They've obviously had this, like, tender breakthrough, like, physical touch, mm. but it's the first time they kiss, and it's the only time they kiss. It's the other way they end the movie. But um, I guess I was more focused on that relationship of her, like, just leaving, you know, leaving her parents and yeah. this love that I think is otherwise just... It's unobtainable, you mm. know? And I that's a great detail that for some reason I just didn't click on that that is exactly one third of the the cost but yeah i don't know i just i I was hopeful to see her just completely move on she lives some sort of life with melanie and is able to embrace more more of an intimacy or or a sense of intimacy Um, yeah i think what it is it was more importantly the fact it was the exact amount as the equilibrium brought from that so it is pure closure yeah like she's not going to actively pursue her parents she's probably never going to trust her parents again but that's that's enough. I think that that they'll never have that. Int- that's the closure, the right. closing point. That and the kiss, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, cool. I, I Do you have it. anything else you'd like to add? Um, let's take a look for my cheeky notes, which I didn't have time to clean up. I just sort of like sporadically type. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I sometimes I run out of time to do that. But um, no, I feel like we we sort of touched on that. Um, I like that you kind of touched already on that. There are other characters. It's not just this family that are struggling. Like you say, the guy who they're paying rent to, he's sort of always on edge, which is funny. Even, I think it was Kelly who says, like, you only pay 500 a month? Like, she's surprised by that figure. Um, I just like the the little hints that it, other characters are struggling. And with very rare exception, we don't really meet any characters that are well off, you know, except for the family at the very beginning where they get the coupon from in the first place. But even, like, their daughter, who does the coupon isn't really she doesn't seem all that motivated in the job that that's actually a great mm. scene of them just being quiet 
Um, but yeah, I guess I'm ready to jump in a highlight scene solely off the idea that I couldn't pick one. <laughs> oh, that's great. I got one. I like one. Okay, well, you, you tell me yours, see if we can cover some bases sure. on my end. <laughs> it's definitely that um, moment when they invade a man's house who is on his deathbed. Oh my God, that was like my one. Oh, there we like, go. Like, I have several, but that was like my, the one I was going to pick. Yeah. That's incredible. All right, you go on, you please. Um, so obviously, the, the quartet... <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, which we also have to point out, this was a 2020 release, so yes, plays into Zeke's quartet theory. Oh, with <laughs> Shirley and Baby Teeth. Um, what were some of the other ones? God, I could was probably a. T- um, oh, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, um, kind of King of Staten Island. No, really, that's more of a. F- oh no. Mm. Maybe the girlfriend. Nah, no, not, probably wouldn't give it to King of Staten. Not the same. Not the same. You're right. Um, not the same. Just. <laughs> um, there you go. That's a treble. Um, there you go. There's four of them for four characters each. So, um, yeah, it's the scene where they invade this um, sickly on man on his deathbed, and he asks them to. I think he's aware other people are in the house, but obviously he's so ill and sick that he's kind of just doing last requests, pretty much. Yeah. And of course, there's a moment where he asks them to play the piano, and I believe it's Melanie, Melanie that yes, plays the Melanie. piano. Um, and there's sort of a complete kind of utopian transition almost mm. into this, um, you know, Robert sitting there watching, watching some golf or something like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to know how it's golf? Cause he said, uh, a, a, a one holer, he called it a one holer or something like that. Yeah. Not a hole in one. Yeah. <laughs> I cracked me up. And <laughs> so there's, this, golf, there's yeah. almost this moment where they kind of have this complete and utter unity and, and are completely embedded in... You forget that they're robbing this house and there's a man who owns this house sitting in his on his deathbed and they're all completely kind yeah. of swept up in the pure materialistic American dream situation. Yeah. And Well, it's the idea... First off, it's part of that absurdist comedy... That, you yeah. know, they're saying things and this old man is just sort of reacting to them. But how far they go for the job is that they are able to recreate this family that yeah. you would otherwise think they wouldn't have any clue what that even looks like. Absolutely. But they do and they can perform it. And, they yeah, they're saying, like, talking about, like, wanting to mow the lawn and stuff like <laughs> that. And, and Dolio gets completely caught up in it. Yeah. And then... After you know, it's it's Robert that just puts the hammer down. And basically, goes okay. Yeah, go check if he's dead. Like, yeah. um, does complete snaps and cold. And it's an excellent scene because it, it obviously it really appear it really demonstrates the how horrible, um, particularly Robert's character is. But yeah. Teresa obviously included in that. And, and well, they both have this sort of fake empathy, and they almost shame Dolio for not understanding why this is a sad moment which is just horrible because they're the reason for that yeah we know they're lying they're faking this emotion probably for melanie's sake mm. and for their own sake to you know make money absolutely take that guy's money yeah, yeah. it's, it's, a, brilliant it's scene. a fantastic scene yeah good great mixing with diegetic and mm. music and and just the like you said the absurd of absurdist comedy aspects great um yeah um, and I think it's the scene that really kind of epitomizes the film and why every ca- and every character's motives and empathies and likes and dislikes and 
sort of really, really shows us between that and then like the earlier scenes of watching sort of the, the cradling of babies and stuff like that. Ah, uh, yeah, like the um, breast crawl and yeah, all that. Breast, yeah, <laughs> that sort of stuff is... is Any stuff with Evan Rachel Wood in this film is just dynamite. Yeah. She's fantastic. No, she, she is fantastic. Um, well, I guess you made my job really easy. Oh, great. Because um, that, that's an excellent, that's what I'm here excellent for. scene. Because that, that was the scene where it's like, I can think of scenes that are probably like more obvious highlight scenes. Um, but I sort of went with that one as well because you're right. There's, there's a lot of clever things, but it's almost, there's a lot of subtlety as well mm-hmm. in why it's clever. Um, the one I got to go for, because the bathroom tremor is incredible. Such mm-hmm. an incredible scene, but we already sort of covered it. The 17 yep. take oneers and all that. But the scene, and I talked about it earlier, is when she has, you know, the money, the $1,575. And she said, I'll give it to you if you can call me Hun. And she just can't do it. And, like, that's a great exchange. And it, and it's just a, such a wonderful realization and moment of characters intersecting. But Melanie's line. And I will remember this. And I forgot about this line until I rewatched it last night. And mm. it just, the same effect. When she has that flat, like, I'll do it. I'll call you, hun, for $1,575. Yeah, $1, like, something about that delivery and the music that plays under it and just that rush of moving forward. I mean, it's the exact midpoint of the film. Very clearly mm-hmm. the middle point. And the chills that went down my spine on that delivery. I don't know what it is, but it's watching it especially not knowing where it's going from there mm-hmm. and how this is going to escalate. And the again, there's a sense of absurdism that by Melanie saying that, it's almost pointing out like this is the most ridiculous thing I'm seeing, but one of the most unique lines that also says, I love you and I'm going to show you that I love you. Yeah. And, and to your point earlier, which she could have left at any time, she could have left when she caught her hun and got and $1,500, yeah. but decides, no, we're going to do a whole laundry list of these things. We're going to dance, we're going to make pancakes and we're going to do our breast crawl and all of these things. So I think, I don't know, there's something about that line, which on the surface is such a weird line, but delivered to perfection. Powerful. No worries. Well, Miranda July's Kajillionaire is currently mm. out on Amazon Prime. Yeah. I've got it on DVD as well, but yeah. Amazon Prime is that HD yeah. option. Yeah, go, to, go to go to um, Prime. High streaming. I'm on a, I'm on a Prime high. <laughs> Prime high. I love it. Yeah, because, yeah, all the the boys was on Prime. In, in, Invincibles, is that what it's called? Um, what's that? Invincibles. Just Invincible. Invincible. Okay. Invincible and the boys. And, yes. And you, so it's, pr- it's time for Prime. But, it's yes, Prime. it's Prime time. Speaking of Prime time, <laughs> Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Well, coming to Prime later this week is the Australian film Rams, which uh, I think you might be keen on. You might be keen to see that one. Speaking of Australian cinema, you also got High Ground coming to stand this week. I know this is one that we've both been sort of keen to see. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite catch in theatres, but now we can on stand. Um, and Not So Australian coming to Netflix this week. All lands on Sunday the 1st, which I found interesting, is Joker, Spike is 1 and 2, The Matrix Trilogy, which I swore was already on, but whatever, and The Hangover, uh, the, Hangover geez, the, the Hunger Games franchise. So that's all dropping on August 1st on Netflix at the end of this week. And coming to cinemas, this one's already out. I must have it must have slipped through my fingers, Zeke, as right. as they sometimes do. Snake Eyes, GI Joe Origins is the remake and origin story of the titular slippery character. Slippery like a snake. Slippery, exactly. Slippery like a snake. It's all it's all on purpose, Zeke. 
I do these things. Um, I remember the 2009 Rise of Cobra film. I it, went and saw that in the cinema. Oh no! I don't remember too much about it. You but. know what? I can I can figure out right here, Zeke. You can see on my computer. These, Isn't there? There's a there's a which which white dudes in it? Is it which is white it, dude? In G, uh, that GI Joe film. Some, is it Tatum? Is it Tatum? Yes, Tatum is. I think he is. Who's the main white? A there's film? a main white dude. What's that? I already forgot. Rise of Cobra. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Channing Tatum. I think it's Tatum. Yep, there he is. Oh, come on, son. Well done, well done. <laughs> I'm going to look... What you're, what you're looking at right now, Zeke? I've got this written down. These are the movie tickets I used to collect when I was younger. Okay. Starting with Spider-Man 2 in August 2004. So that was... Do you nearly, have these tickets? Uh, yes, but a lot of them are faded, so that's why I wrote them down. Yeah, I'm trying I to remember. We, we had a friend... Let's see if Cobra... Collected them <gasps> it is, Zeke. The 9th of September, 2009, 10.45am to 12.58pm. G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. I love that you keep the times. That is like... I wrote everything, level. man. Guess, guess what the last film was. That you kept track of? Yeah, in 2013. Have a guess. Civil War? Hangover Part 3. Okay. I actually saw that in the cinema, too. Oh, there you go. The last superhero film I saw was Dark Knight Rises in 2012. Um, but yeah, I can't, did I really see Hangover Part 3 in the cinema? Jeez, I didn't know that. But anyway, there you go. G.I. Joe Origin Story. I'm sure it's not great, but there you go. Um, also coming out, you have The Last Ones of Africa getting its wide lunar release this week. Uh, Jungle Crew sees Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Emily Blunt team up to face the dangerous animals and reptiles in this theme park-based film. Mm. And uh, So yeah, it's based on a theme park, isn't it? Yeah, I saw the trailer for this. This looks rough. Yeah, I can imagine. It looks, d- like, it looks like, like Jumanji's <laughs> like younger cousin. Oh, God. With the same guy. Yeah, exactly. That's true. With Dwayne Boy. Uh, it also comes to Disney Plus Premier Access if you're so inclined. Uh, the Toll, which is in the style of dark comedies like Fargo, sees a lone Toll booth operator as he deals with his past. That's fast catching up to him. See, I wrote that on purpose. That's p- His past is fast, but I forgot to say it in that way. Finally, Fanny Lee or Lay, Fanny Lee Delivered, also known as The Delivered, is set on an isolated farm in 1657 where a woman's world of an oppressive marriage is turned upside down when two strangers in need turn up to their doorstep. Apparently, this is a 2019 film, so we're getting a real late. But that happens. That mm. happens sometimes. Well, especially yeah. in the last couple of years, the way it's been. Yeah, exactly. We've seen some, mm. we've seen some stuff. I feel like, oh, they're doing the Charlie Chaplin collection. That's what it is. Mm. There's some stuff. There's some good classics coming out this week, but we've agreed, Zeke. We're not gonna. We're gonna read those. No, no. no we're actually moving into another 2020 release. Ooh, um, exciting. Well, I mean, it gets weird, right? This is the other thing with the whole 2019, 2020. Yeah, it was probably like a Sundance thing. This is the then... father situation all over again. It's like, yeah, we couldn't get near the film until 2021, so we're probably gonna count it as a 2021 film. People watched the father in January 2020. And it came out in April 2021. So, you know, what can we do? But, like we said, we're not watching any of those next week on the show. But, Jake, we're moving into a film that you quite like. Yeah, it's kind of pretty similar and is currently my favourite film of this year. (laughs) So what are we watching? It's next week on the show, I should say. We're watching Shiver Baby. Hi, Daddy. Hi, sweetie. How do I look? Um, Shall we go in, everybody? Mom, who died? She was so she was so full of life. She yeah. lost so much weight. You think she has an eating disorder? I'm you look like Gwyneth Paltrow on food stamps. Oh my god! No funny business with Maya. 
know each other. Um. He's married? Yeah. Huh? While at a Jewish funeral service with her parents, a college student has an awkward encounter with both her sugar daddy and her ex-girlfriend. So Zeke, this is the other film I saw in the last couple of weeks, so a preview screening of mm-hmm. Luna, and um, it comes out wide this week as well, so if you're going to Luna, for me. you can also catch it one. Yeah, exactly, so you can catch it. Uh, and I, need, I need to catch it. It's very good, Zeke. It's a very good film. I've, I've heard good things. Mm. Um, I'm very excited. Um, I haven't been to the cinema for a little bit. Oh, I saw Black Widow. I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> it's like that. I've been to Lunar in a bit. It's okay. probably a better way of saying it. Um, it's like that. You're like, I haven't been to cinema in a while. And then you're like, oh, I saw this and this and this. Yeah. You kind of forget some stuff. So it's really good studying at Notre Dame because like, going to see movies became a very easy thing to do, mm. just casually. Um, yeah. So I'll probably be returning to that because I go back to uni next week. Um, Beautiful. So yeah, next week on the show... That'll be what we're covering. So until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Jake. I was Jake. Oh, Catch no. you next week with Shiver Baby. <laughs> <laughs>